Last Sunday, we spent 24 hours with Jesus, and it was quite a day, right? Um, it was quite the day. Um, he was teaching in the synagogue and then exercised a demon from a disruptive attendee. Hopefully, that doesn't happen here today. Um, keep your demons inside today. I don't have to do any of that. Um, he healed a mother-in-law, which was maybe the greatest miracle of Mark's gospel. He healed a mother-in-law. And then after hours, after 5 o'clock, crowds of people at sundown, because that's when Sabbath ended, crowds of people bring their sick and oppressed to Jesus for healing and deliverance. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not a day on my calendar, okay? Uh, I, I don't look at my calendar and see any of these things on a given day, but that's what a day in the life of Jesus looked like. And when we last left Jesus, his fame had spread throughout the entire region, and the scriptures say, Mark says, that the whole city is gathered at the door of this home. Jesus has gone viral. He is the talk of the town. His friend requests are blowing up, right? He, everyone knows his name. Uh, the people are astonished by his power and his authority. And as soon as I get my glasses, I'm going to read to you what happens next. I just need to start putting these things up here every week. I'm like, i got to get my glasses. Uh, verse 35, look what happens next after his fame spread. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. I know some of you are like, you lost me right there. Rising while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. What does Jesus do with this newfound fame? He gets up at zero dark 30, finds a desolate place and prays. Jesus deliberately withdraws, isolates himself, and spends intentional time with his heavenly father. And there is such a lesson to be learned here. That Jesus moves away from fame and popularity and busyness and he moves toward deliberate time in prayer and isolation. That his ministry is propelled and empowered by his intentional time with the Father. I mean, what does it say to us that Jesus, the Son of God, felt he needed time in prayer? I mean, if Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son incarnate, felt he needed time in prayer, how much more do we need to slow down, remove ourselves from the chaos of life, and get alone with the Heavenly Father and pray? How much more do we need to pull back from the constant push toward getting noticed, toward being accepted, Toward being acknowledged, how much more do we need to pull back from that constant push and just spend time with God? Is our life in the daily grind fueled and empowered by our time with God? The psalmist said it, be still. And know that he is God. Be still and know. So, 
Jesus is pulled back, isolated, spending time with the Father, and then interruptions. I don't know if you know this or not, but life is filled with interruptions. Life is filled with the constant pull away from and toward. And so Jesus is interrupted. Verse 36, and Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him and said to him, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Interruptions. The disciples interrupt his solitude. Literally, the phrase here in the original language is that they hunt him down. And zateo, the word zateo is they find him. And any time that these two words are paired together, it usually implies misguided or malicious intentions. They hunt him down and they find him. You see, the disciples have a different agenda than Jesus. The disciples' agenda is, Jesus, we need to capitalize on this thing. We need to capitalize on the notoriety. We have a kingdom to build. Remember, like, overthrow the Romans, right? Put us in charge. We need to build the kingdom through the means that we believe the kingdom will be built. Jesus basically is saying, your idea of how the kingdom of God is advanced is quite different than mine. And that will unfold throughout Mark's gospel. I want to talk for just a minute here. Like the disciples, um, I believe that we tend to measure the success of ministry by, listen, the number of people it attracts. Um, in our very consumeristic culture, we are programmed to evaluate everything, including church, on likes and dislikes. And that is why, when it comes to things like church, that um, we often, I say we meaning people, all of us, we tend to measure the success of church by likes and dislikes. I like the singing of this church. I don't really like the preaching at this church. What kids' programs does this church have to offer me? What programs can I get here that I can't get somewhere else? Like these are our metrics for doing life together. This is our metrics for determining the success or failure of a church. This mindset of the disciples. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. That was their metric. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. I mean, think about the size of this crowd. I mean, what can we do, the disciples are saying, with this amount of people who are basically following you right now? That was their metric of success. Number of likes equals success. But Jesus, right, throughout all of Mark's gospel, Jesus pushes us toward a different metric, a different measure. His measure is one that is marked by a cross. And in this case, empowered by prayer. Like, what if our ministries were evaluated based on our faithfulness to the gospel, to the message of the cross? Like, this is the framework that Paul paints in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, which, again, the church of Corinth was um, one of Paul's potentially largest and most complicated. The city of Corinth 
uh, definitely one of the more growing populated cities in that area. And, and listen to what Paul says. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the, power, of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul often said, what I bring to you is a message of Christ crucified, the message of the cross. It's why at City Church we emphasize again and again that the church belongs to Jesus. Because Jesus is very clear that he will build his church. He will build his church. And that phrase, build, has nothing to do with size or popularity. It has everything to do with our faithfulness to the message of the cross, the gospel itself. Now, I'll be really clear here. Small, medium, or large churches can all be faithful or unfaithful to the message of the cross. The size of the church has nothing to do with the faithfulness of the message of the gospel. The point is, any ministry built on anything other than the gospel is constructed on sand. So, we will do everything we can to keep the focus on Jesus and trust him to build his church. Be really quick here to say this. A focus on Christ, listen, includes creating engaging gospel environments where people who do not follow Jesus are drawn to the goodness and the grace of him through how we minister to the broken and the wounded. You see, when your focus is on Jesus, it's not just a us approach. It is a them approach as well, right? That Jesus went out to seek and save the lost. People matter to us because people matter to God. But the success of ministry is not measured by how many people gather at an, an appropriate time on a Sunday morning. That's not the measure of success. That's how we tend to measure it because that's our consumeristic culture pushes us in that direction, right? We get before the Father and then we proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of the cross as we love and serve the people, the region where God has placed us. Important to say in our consumeristic day and age. Jesus makes that clear in what happens next, beginning in verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus is on point. He is on mission. He leaves, check this transition out, he leaves what appears to be a fruitful and productive opportunity. The entire city is gathered at the door. 
he leaves what appears to be a fruitful and productive opportunity to take the good news of the kingdom throughout Galilee. We know from week one what his kingdom message is. Repent, which we've talked about every week, is to turn from everything about me, to my life, my understanding, my way of living, and to turn to Jesus, right? To repent and believe, to trust. And we have talked about how the context of Jesus saying this, of that it is the kingdom of God message, is that what Jesus is saying is you turn from your way of living, thinking, understanding, and you become a citizen of my kingdom. You live under my rule and reign, Jesus says, that I am your king. Repent and turn. That is the kingdom message that Jesus proclaimed. And his primary mission was not to be a miracle worker. And his primary mission was not to gather a crowd. His primary mission in this text is to preach the kingdom message, which is defined by a cross, to turn from us and to turn to him. And so he travels the region, preaching in synagogues and confronting the, dark, the, the darkness. By the way, there's no reference here to whether his recipients are deserving or undeserving. He just proclaims. There's no indication whether they're receptive or non-receptive. He just proclaims. Repent and turn. And then Mark zeroes in on one example of this, beginning in verse 40. Verse 40, and a leper came to him. Okay, so notice the, the direction here. A leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. So Mark gives us a story that Jesus is approached by a leper who kneels before Jesus, and this is a strong word here, implores, he begs him to make him clean. So let me put this in context. Um, leprosy was a widespread disease that included a wide variety of skin, de skin diseases. If you go into the Old Testament and if you go into uh, Leviticus 13, 14, you know those areas that kind of bog down your yearly Bible reading, you're like, man, I just can't make it through this. When you go back, Leviticus 13, 14 reads like a, I don't know, a dermatology manual uh, in the Old Testament on how to treat uh, people who uh, obtain this leprosy, this ancient uh, disease. Even though leprosy is still around today, it looks a little different. Um, and it provides very specific instructions on how to deal with people who contract leprosy. Now, let me tell you what was going on in Jesus' time. Not only was there like the Old Testament, Leviticus 13, 14, but the Mishnah, which were the oral traditions of the rabbis, the rabbinic oral traditions. So those were the teachings that they would take the Old Testament and they would say, that's great. Now we need to also add all of this to it to keep you from breaking the Old Testament. There's also all these oral traditions you need to follow. And so when you go into the Mishnah, it contains just a, a surplus of details on how to deal with lepers. Let me summarize it for you. Eventually... By the time Jesus arrives in the oral traditions, anyone with any type of skin disease was stigmatized as sinful, and they were excluded from the community. Now, let me tell you what that means for me. Since I was uh, in high school, um, I've had some type of struggle with psoriasis. Anyone here with me? Got the whole psoriasis thing going? Unfortunately, I've passed it on to... My kids, a couple of them have it, different levels. Levi has it. He'll like play out in the grass for 45 minutes, and then he'll come in and look like he's got some 
kind of rash, right? So the psoriasis. I battle it now a lot less than I did back when I was younger. Um, I'm not going to rattle out my parents here, but um, about 10th grade is when I learned I had, did you notice I said but in that sentence? I'm not going to rattle them out, but um, when I was about 10th grade, um, I had this um, breakout on my feet is where the whole thing started, just the top of the soles of my feet. And uh, my parents took me to this like country doctor that uh, obviously had no clue what he was talking about uh, because his, um, his, his answer for how to treat my psoriasis is that I was somehow allergic to something that must have been in the, the tongues of my shoes. And so here's the, here's the answer. The doctor said, cut the tongues out of your shoes. And so that, that does a lot for your self-esteem when you're a 10th grader walking around school with the tongue cut out of your shoes. Like, what is wrong with that guy? He's like, is this a new style or what? Um, so eventually I made it to a dermatologist after, I don't know, 18 months of humiliation and then um, got the proper ointments to deal with my psoriasis. So I would have been labeled a leper according to the Mishnah, okay? They looked at the top of my feet and been like, isolate that guy because one, he's get broke out. Two, he's walking around with no tongues in his sandals. So I don't know. So here we are, skin disease. Um, this guy approaches Jesus um, by the time Jesus arrives, leprosy was not just, this is so important, it was not just a medical diagnosis, it was a life sentence. It was a life sentence because this disease robbed victims not only of their health, but the stigma associated with leprosy robbed them of their identity their value, their worth, their occupation, their family, their friends, their faith communities, their everyday normal life. They were isolated from society. They lived, we'll make this relevant, they had to live in permanent quarantine, okay? If anyone even approached a leper, they were under the obligation by the law to yell out, unclean, unclean, unclean. The label, don't miss what I'm saying here. The label that was given them by their culture and by themselves was, I am an unclean person. You ever lived life with a label that you took on yourself or people around you gave you? We gotta be really careful with labels, don't we? Unclean. Unclean. For this leper to even approach Jesus broke every religious, moral, and social rule. But he is desperate, he's broken, he's wounded, he's in need, he sees Jesus as his only way out, and so he acts in desperation. By the way, it's not a bad place to be when you're broken. It's not a bad place to be when you're wounded, to be desperate. And how Jesus responds is even more telling. 41, how does Jesus respond? Moved with pity, moved with compassion, he <coughs> stretches out his hand and touched him and said, I will 
be clean. And immediately, there's our trigger word in Mark, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Jesus is moved with pity. This word translated pity, um, it's a, a strong emotional word. Um, some translations don't even know what to do with it. Um, it's translated in some English translations, anger, moved with anger, that Jesus was angry toward the impact and the effects of sin and brokenness. Um, here, the ESV translates it compassion or translates it pity. Either way, the idea is this strong emotional reaction that Jesus feels the pain of this leper and then he does the unthinkable. He stretches out his hand and he touches him. This act of compassion would be considered not only highly inappropriate, but completely forbidden. Jesus would have been labeled unclean. You hear what I'm saying? He identifies with the unclean with the possibility of being labeled unclean. Isn't that the story of Jesus? Who is this guy hanging out with sinners? He is a friend of sinners who is this guy a drunk right a glutton you know why he's hanging out with drunks and gluttons taking the label man what a savior rather than turning from rather than condemning this leper Jesus turns to him he touches him. He restores him. The first instinct of Jesus is to move toward the broken and needy and hurting and not away from them. Man, I mean, this is just what we're learning in our gentle and lowly study in the book and in the small group that in, in gentle and lowly that Ortland talks about that the first impulse of Jesus the holy one, the clean one, is to move in the direction of the unholy and unclean because he makes the unholy holy. He makes the unclean clean. He makes the diseased whole. He makes the contaminated pure. Jesus reverses the religious purity codes of his day which commanded people to stay away from the diseased and the sinful and the broken and the impure and the unclean. And instead, Jesus moves toward the sick, sinful, and needy because he came to seek and to save the lost. Think about the picture that Mark gives us in these two scenes. Jesus moves away from personal fame. He moves away from self-glory. He moves away from recognition. He moves away from popularity. And instead, he moves toward the fallen. He moves toward the hurting. He moves toward the untouchable. What a Savior he is. Our tendency in our moments of sin and brokenness and hurt is to turn away from him in shame and guilt, to believe that he is somehow repulsed by us. The leper does not question the ability of Jesus to save him. He questions his willingness to save him. If you 
are willing, will you make me clean? That's what everyone's told him. You're a leper. You're broken. That's what everyone has told him. That's how they've treated him. Go live by yourself. Isolation. If anyone approaches you, identify yourself with this label. You're unclean, unclean, unclean. Keep them away from you. He's lost everything. He's living with this stigma. His brokenness is his first foot forward. It's what defines him. So, of course, this rabbi, this holy rabbi, I mean, what an act of courage to even approach him. But why, why would this holy rabbi want to touch him, to cleanse him? He doesn't doubt that Jesus is able to. He doubts he's willing to. Because that's how we're wired. The stories of Jesus remind us again and again and again that he gravitates toward those who are wounded and hurt and broken. That his instinct is to heal and forgive and restore. It's what he loves to do. Jesus is not repulsed by you. Come to him. He's not turned off by you. Come to him. In our darkest moments, we run to him not from him. And we do this because he's not turned away by our sin and brokenness. He is drawn toward us in those moments. His grace and forgiveness are most evident in our most desperate and sinful seasons of life. We're going to come back and follow that up in just a moment. But first, let me address this kind of interesting twist to the story. Um, Jesus heals the leper, and then he just like sends him packing. Um, look at 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away. There are times that I seek to get Levi's attention or correct him, and then there are times that I sternly seek to get his attention and correct him. Two different things. Jesus sternly charges him and sends him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Pretty simple charge, 45. But instead, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So, keeping in step with the Mosaic law, Jesus instructs this ex-leper to follow protocol. Go show yourself to the priest, and he will declare you clean officially, and then you'll be reinstated to the community. That was kind of protocol back Mosaic law. He also sternly directs him to remain quiet about the incident until he's followed protocol. This ex-leper does the opposite. He talks freely about it. He spreads the news. And Mark says as a result of that, Jesus is unable to enter freely into the towns. That 
people crowd him to the point that he is forced to withdraw to a more desolate place where the people still come to him. Interesting twist in the Mark story here that Jesus becomes the outsider by the end of this, by the end of chapter 1. So what's up with Jesus telling everyone to be quiet? Like, this is not the only time we read this. It's not the only time we will read it as we go through Mark's gospel. Just a few simple reasons why here, and we'll, as we go through Mark's gospel, we'll continue to flesh this out. Uh, most New Testament scholars believe there's a few things happening here. One, Jesus does not want to be viewed just as a miracle worker, just as a sideshow. Two, faith that is based merely on the spectacular is not usually genuine faith. Three, the overall mission of Jesus, as we see here, is disrupted when it becomes about the show. Jesus could not even enter towns because this guy couldn't keep his pie hole shut. He didn't follow protocol. He didn't do what Jesus asked him to do, and so it limits and restricts what Jesus can do in these towns. And then most importantly, and I believe kind of the, the bigger true purpose behind a lot of the be quiet instructions of Jesus in the text is that the true purpose of the coming of Jesus, as we've already seen and will continue to see, the true purpose of his coming will not be realized by his followers until they watch him die and be raised back to life. His disciples are still figuring this whole thing out. They will, they will for three plus years. They're still scratching their head when Jesus is taken back to the Father. Like, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom? And so until Jesus dies and is raised back to life, he is kind of pinpointed as this miracle worker. Still with this idea that he's going to set up an earthly kingdom to overthrow the Romans. And so Jesus is constantly telling those he heals to keep it quiet. And they rarely do. And it hinders the ministry of Jesus, which is centered not on a show and not on the spectacular and not on the miraculous, but it is centered on a cross. And we'll pick back up with that as we kind of go through the text and see these incidents. But I want to end today by bringing us back to what we learn about Jesus from this text. And we are reminded in this story, don't miss this. We are reminded in this story that Jesus is infinitely tender. Infinitely tender. That Jesus is the most open and accessible person, Ortland says, in the universe. Now, we naturally resist this truth. And we do so because we know and live with the ugliness inside. We know the dark corners. I mentioned in our small group this past Wednesday night that we can't even measure up to our own standards in our minds. We don't even meet our own expectations. And so we feel inadequate and we feel unworthy of unconditional love and grace. After all, Jesus is perfectly holy, and we are not. So it is perfectly normal to kind of live life and believe that he's just kind of holding us at arm's length. And it's why we must remind ourselves what the Scriptures teach again and again and again and again about who Jesus is. 
that God defies what we instinctively feel by embracing us in our messiness. In our smallness, he sees us. He notices us. In our sinfulness, he draws near to us. In our hurt, he empathizes with us. He is drawn toward us even when we are convinced that he does not want to be. He is not repelled by your fallenness and brokenness. He is not hesitant or slow to meet us in our darkest moments of need and emptiness and sorrow. It is in our moments of weakness that Paul says his strength is found most clearly. Man, we love to wear labels. We love to wear labels we put on ourselves. We love to wear labels that other people put on us. We love to label other people. Like this guy was labeled a leper, one, because he had the the disease of leprosy, but beyond that, he was labeled a a, a leper because of how he had to live life. Isolated, removed, ostracized, looked down upon. Labels will define you if you allow them to. And it's why we as Jesus followers, we need to be really careful before we just throw labels on people. This person is a this or a that or does this or do these things. Man, it just blows my mind at times. The labels we, I hear followers of Jesus pinning on people. And we take a step back and we say, Jesus loves us in our darkest, deepest moments. Not just us, but those around us. And when we read accounts like this one in the Gospels, we realize what brings Jesus to tears, what gets him out of the bed in the morning, what compels and drives him are the ostracized and the hurting and the wounded and the sinful and the broken, the lepers. Now, if you're like me, I tend to dilute Jesus here. I tend to tame his grace and compassion, often unintentionally. And we do it because that is not how we're programmed to think and live. We are hardwired toward earning it and deserving it and working for it. And it is why week after week after week at City Church, I push us to Jesus, to who he is. Who we are in him. Because it is only as we dive deeper into who Jesus is that we experience true transformation and spiritual growth. The entirety of Christian living can be summarized with this idea of diving deeper and deeper and deeper into who Jesus is. And that's why week in and week out, I'm going to bring you back to Jesus, back to the gospel. What's the alternative here? Like the alternative is to live life on this constant treadmill of of doing our best to try and please him and earn him through our own efforts and kind of hoping that there's this stockpile of grace that does not run out on me before I make it to the end. Get off the treadmill. You are a leper. 
Your heart is diseased. You cannot heal yourself. But here's the good news. Not only is he able to heal, he is willing to heal. He wants to heal. He desires to forgive and redeem and restore and make whole. He is full of compassion and love and mercy. And his instinct is to move toward us in our darkest and most sinful moments. Where our sin abounds, his sin abounds even more. Embrace who he is, that he is full of tenderness and compassion and mercy and grace and forgiveness and healing. Run to him. It is what he desires, which brings us full circle in this story. We dive deeper into who Jesus is as... We withdraw from the chaos, from the constant push toward acceptance and performance and likes, and we get quiet, and we still our souls before Him, and we spend time with Him. We go to the desolate place to prepare for the interruptions. We find our fuel for living in the everyday in his presence. And empowered by the gospel, we touch the untouchable. We love the unlovely. We pursue the hurting. Not because we are better than them, but because we were the leper. We are the leper, and Jesus, full of compassion, moved with pity, moves in our direction. He comes to us, and he says, not only am I able to make you whole, I am willing to make you whole. Run to him. What a savior he is.